Hear the word of the Lord for us this morning. Paul writes, first of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of our God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is a testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And dear God, we do ask once again for your presence to fill this place. Empower us, Lord, with everything we need to understand well your word, not simply so that we become better students of the word, but so we become better followers of your word. Lord, we want to change the way we think. We want to change the way we feel. We want to change the way we act. Lord, you can do all of that in and through the power of this word. Make it so, we pray. In your son's name we ask, amen. Please be seated, and if you would, hold on to that song we just sang, Your Grace is Enough, Your Grace is Enough, Your Grace is Enough. We repeated it three times, but then we ended with, Your Grace is Enough for Me. The question for us here is who can sing that song? Your grace is enough for me. Who can sing that song? There's a natural tendency in all of humanity to see the world in terms of us and them. It's a sinful tendency to be sure. It arises out of our pride the idea that we see things in terms of us and in terms of them. You can see it beginning all the way back on the playground where you've got the cool kids and everybody else. You can see it in our politics where we've got people that think like me and all those who are wrong. We've got the idea in every social situation that we come up with, every social question that arises quickly divides into us in them, and the temptation would be to think that this is a rather new phenomenon. Many people have noted that it is bad in our society today, that it's bad within our church, that it's bad everywhere you come, but I will maintain that this is something that has affected the church way back, all the way back in biblical times, prior to biblical times. This understanding of an us versus them mentality and the influence that that has affected on stuff. I've been involved in five or six different churches in my lifetime in every church that I've been participating in has struggled with an us versus them mentality in some form or another, every single one. Again, it goes all the way back to biblical times. In the Old Testament, in particular, Israel misunderstood their unique calling in this world, their unique calling by God, and they took that to be favoritism. They saw it not as them leading the world to know Jesus, but instead for them to be separate from the world, for them to be different from the rest of the world. And this, came in, this infected their thinking so heavily that by Jesus' time, 
the distinction was such that you had the Israelites, the Jewish people, and you had everyone else, and everyone else was almost subhuman. That influence affected them so heavily. In the New Testament, this grounds so much of the concern that Paul has for a proper understanding of the Bible, a proper understanding of the cross of Jesus Christ. For all too often, we naturally see things in an us-versus-them mentality, and when we do that, Paul screams, that can't be, because we misunderstand the sufficiency of Christ when we think like that. Now, to be fair, most people that I interact with, and most churches, and indeed the, Old Te- the New Testament itself, there's an understanding that the cross of Christ, the salvation that is there, is good enough for everybody. But the implication is always creeping in that first people should become like us, and then the gospel will work for them too. Yes, the gospel is good enough for everybody, but the trick is for them to become like us first, whatever that means. In the early church, that meant first that you had to become Jewish and then you could experience the blessings of the cross of Jesus Christ. For a lot of us, it first means that the drug addict has to give up his drugs, that the adulterer has to no longer be in an adulterous relationship, that the person who lives with these kind of morals or these kind of ethics or this kind of culture first has to kind of adapt our culture, and then the gospel will work with them too. It's an us-versus-them mentality with the idea that the them have to become like us, so that the gospel will work for them. And every time Paul hears that and runs into that, every time Jesus runs into that, the expression is, no, you're misunderstanding the core essence of the gospel when you talk like that. Now, rarely do I run into anybody that actually talks like that. If, if you said it, you would know that it's not right. Oh, the gospel is for white, North American, middle-class people and up. Just saying it, we know it's not true. But we live it. It creeps in. It infects the way the gospel lives its life. And you know that's the case because of how much time Paul bangs away this idea that, no, the cross in Jesus Christ, there is no Greek nor slave, Greek nor, nor free. There is no Jew nor Greek. There it is. There is no slave nor free. There is no rich person or poor person. There is no favoritism in the cross of Jesus Christ. And any time that thinking creeps in, and again, it is subtle. It is like all sin in our lives. It creeps in when we're not watching it. And we sit there and think, boy, the gospel would be great for this person if only they And when we start thinking like that, we are having an us-versus-them mentality that runs directly counter to the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And if our worship service is to be a worship of the true and living God, the real living God, then it has to reflect exactly that character of the living God. Our worship should be a worship service each and every week that reflects that global perspective of the work of Christ, the global work 
of Christ. Not global in terms of every nation and, and missionaries and stuff like that. That's true. But the fact that there is no boundary to the gospel message, every person that comes here into this worship service, now not everybody's going to be comfortable. We have a certain culture here. We fa- function a certain way. We like certain songs that maybe people won't like. We, you know, I understand all that. Maybe people aren't going to be, maybe they won't like what we do here but there cannot possibly be anybody that feels like their gospel doesn't extend to them. However we proclaim it, however we sing it, however we live it, every person that comes into this church must feel and understand that the gospel that is being proclaimed right here, not just in the pulpit time, but in everything that we do, that the gospel touches every individual, that everyone can say God's grace is enough for me. And that church believes it. That church lives it. Again, that doesn't mean that we can, everybody will be comfortable here. I realize that's not the case. But in our proclamation of the gospel, we have to fight against that natural tendency that every one of us are going to have to think in our minds, oh, this person, if only they are just a little bit more like this, they will be ready for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the Lord consistently proclaims a different message, a message that says that the cross is sufficient as it is. And this is exactly what Paul is getting at when he writes to Timothy. And he speaks to him about Timothy's public worship. Here's what your worship is supposed to be like, Timothy. This is the the guts of chapter 2. Of, the, of his first letter to Timothy. First letter to Timothy, if you'll turn to that, please, in chapter 2. With this understanding that Paul is constantly fighting this battle, that, there, that we are one in Jesus Christ, that there is no subdivision, that there is no better than me or better than you. Paul writes, first of all then, I don't know about you, but anytime I read first of all, I immediately start looking for a second of all and third of all. Like first of all is a list, Right? Like, it it only reads that way to me every time. But if you look through this passage, you won't find a second of all. Uh, Paul is, this is not a list. Paul is not identifying, this is the first thing that you do, then the second thing that you do, stuff like that. What he's saying is, hey, first, this is of first, this is of primary importance. Listen carefully, because this is, this needs to be weighing heavily upon you right away. What weighs heavily upon us? First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, and intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all peoples. I urge this. This is, there's an urgency to, this is a command, this is command language, but it's a command language that, that uh, carries with it the idea that you're supposed to do it right now. You're supposed to be right at it. Well, what, are you, what is Paul urging here? That supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all peoples. Um, uh, commentators go wild trying to distinguish between the four different types of prayers here. What's supplications versus intercessions versus thanksgivings versus prayers? And basically what everybody comes up with and agrees with is that there's, this, there's a big semantic overlap between those terms. In other words, the terms all kind of mean pretty much the same thing. So why does Paul list out four of them here? Yeah, I don't think what he's saying is first you're supposed to do supplications, then you're supposed to do prayers, then you're supposed to do intercessions. I don't think that's what he's saying. What he's saying is, he says, look, your worship service is supposed to be so covered, so filled, so overwhelmed with prayers that it's just that, that 
all of this is supposed to be happening. He's excited about all the many things that are supposed to be happening in the worship service. He says, look, all of these things are to happen, but what are they supposed to happen for? They are supposed to be made for all people. Your worship service should be such that all people are able to be prayed for. All peoples are supposed to be touched. Now, let's be clear about this. This does not mean that a good worship service identifies every individual in the entire world by name. Okay? That would be a long, long worship service. That when, when Paul says, I want you to pray for all people, he doesn't mean here, I want you to pray for each individual person that has ever lived. What he's saying is that I want your worship service to be such that there are no boundaries to it, that every person who comes and hears the gospel in this place will recognize that they too are covered by the cross of Jesus Christ, that they too are being lifted up before the Lord, that they too are right immediately before the face of God. There is no separations, there are no distinctions that keep any person from the gospel message. And that should be reflected in your prayers. That should be reflected in the way your public worship happens. Not that everybody will like everything that takes place, but nobody will get a sense that, well, if only I was a little bit more like everybody else sitting here. If only I had a little bit more money. If only I was of the right race. If only my identity and gender was rightly corrected. If only I was, any time we feed into that thinking, we are undercutting this very core message that our public worship is supposed to be such that everyone can identify. Everyone hears the gospel message and realizes that it is for them. Paul goes on then, and he says in verse 2, he says, Uh, After he says, I want prayers to be given for all peoples, for kings and all who are in high authority. So he then shifts and starts, and again, it sounds like he's about to make a list for kings, for princes, for governors, for, you know, and he's going to make a whole list. Well, I think this is a typical thing that the Bible does, that when you talk about the head of anything, you're talking about everybody else. And so Paul says, look, I want you to pray for everybody, and how do I illustrate that? Make sure you're praying for kings. Make sure you're praying for the leaders, because if you're praying for the leaders, then you're praying for everybody. You're praying for everybody across the board. In my 35 years or so of being a Christian, I have to say this. I am quite positive that our Lord is disappointed with the way in which American Christianity talks about their leadership. I am positive that God is disappointed with the way in which Christians, people in this church, have spoken about their leaders, political leaders, over the past 30 years, 35 years for me, that I've heard it. Paul here says that we are supposed to pray for kings and all who are in high positions. Now, I beg you to realize what Paul is talking about here. Who is his king? 
Who's the emperor when Paul writes this? It is Nero. If you haven't spent any time, read a Wikipedia page on the emperor Nero. The, the comments about him lighting up his gardens with Christians burning on the stake is exactly true. The crucifixions that he did of any Christian up and down the Appian Way was exactly accurate. The destruction that he made on his own peoples, the brutality of this man. And yet Paul says, you need to pray for him. I know there are people that haven't liked our past four or five presidents. They don't compare to Nero, no matter what you think. The politicians today do not compare to Nero. And Paul says, pray for them. And the church took them seriously. First century prayer, first century prayer of the church. O Lord, grant to our rulers health, peace, harmony. Remember who these rulers are. These ones, these are not bubbling Christians. These are, grant to our rulers health, peace, harmony, and stability that they may blamelessly administer the government which you have given them. Lord, direct their paths according to that which is good and pleasing in your sight, so that they may devoutly administer in peace and gentleness the authority which you have given them, so that they may experience your mercy. That's how the early church prayed for those who literally were persecuting them. So join me in prayer, please. Dear Lord, we do pray for our president, for our past presidents, for all our rulers and those in authority on a local level, on a state level, on a national level. Lord, for kings and rulers across this world. Lord, we pray for health, for peace, for harmony, for stability that they may blamelessly administer the government with which you have given to them. Lord, direct their paths according to that which is good and pleasing in your sight, so that they may in peace and gentleness administer the authority which you have given them, so, O Lord, that they might experience your mercy. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Verse 3, Paul then says, This is good. What is good? Praying for kings? I don't think that's what he means here. But offering prayers and supplications? Not quite. What is it that is good? What's dominating his intention here? That the church in its public worship reflect the boundarylessness of the gospel, that it extends to all peoples. This is good. Why? And it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God, why, are, why is our church supposed to reflect this open-ended nature of the gospel message? Because that matches the very desire of our God. I was absolutely convinced as a kid that anytime my mother showed extra love to my 
brother, which she did all the time, by the way, any time that she showed extra love to my brother, that meant that she had less love to give to me, that it was a zero-sum game. And so I always resented any time that my mother loved my brother because that meant that she loved me less until I had my own kids and I realized that your love just expands. I don't love my son any less because of how much I love. God doesn't desire for you any less when we recognize God's desire for the world. Now, just like in verse 1, where it says that we're supposed to pray for all peoples, I don't think that means that we're supposed to pray for each and every individual. So in this passage, where it says God desires for all people to be saved, it doesn't mean that God is, that this passage is teaching that God desires for each and every individual to be saved. Other passages, other texts of the Bible talk about the way God saves us as individuals. Here the emphasis is, is there any extent, is there any boundary, is there anybody outside the desire of God? No. There is nobody, there is nothing outside of the desire of our Lord. The gospel message extends to every kind of person, all of the people that rankle in the back of your mind that you're just not quite sure that it works for them this passage indicates that yes, it does. The gospel extends to all peoples, for God desires for all to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. The knowledge of the truth, we've been talking about that all the way through chapter one of this passage. That's the guts of the gospel, the fact that Christ died for our sins. God desires for that to be known across the board for all peoples. God's desire is for all peoples, because Christ's death is for all peoples. Look in verse 5. There is one God. Now, there is one God. If there's ten gods that made this world, there's one God that, that made people that think like I do politically, uh, and then that God saves me, and then there's, these other, there's this other God that made people that don't believe like I do politically, and God made them, so let that God save those folks, and my God's going to save me. There's no such thing. There is one God. That's Paul. Now, Paul's not making a theological statement here, just so that we all know, by the way, there's only one God out there. He's drawing the obvious conclusion. There's one God. Therefore, there's one way to get to know that God, and that one way to get to know that God works for you. His grace is sufficient for you but that grace also is sufficient for every type of person, any person that comes to the Lord. For there is only one mediator between God and man. There's one way in which our Lord has set up this desire to spread the gospel to every person in this world. And that is so that Jesus Christ here gave himself as a ransom for who? He gave himself as a ransom for all. And again, in the context of this passage, it's not every individual. It's he gave his life as a ransom for, there is no, you don't have to become like us, like me, to experience the gospel message. Because the gospel message comes to all peoples. Christ's death extends to each and every one of us. Christ gave his life as a, as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. What is the testimony that is given at the proper time? It is that this church would reflect in everything that it does, 
that same gospel breadth that is evident within the Scriptures. That your life would not become so collapsed in upon itself, sin focusing so much upon yourself, that, you, that, that it slips into your thinking consistently that, well, yes, the gospel's good for everybody, but especially for me and people that are like me. The gospel extends, and it has to be reflected. We have to figure a way to reflect that every week in our worship service, that the gospel is boundaryless for all people, because this is exactly what Paul speaks about himself in verse 7. For I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, a teacher of the Gentiles. The word Gentiles there. That's all nations. Paul says, I have been sent forth to preach the gospel, yes, to Jews, but to Gentiles, because there is no limit to the gospel. Now, there's only one way for you to check yourself on this. And that is to consistently be challenging, be open to the challenge that there is a hubris in your heart that causes you to think more highly of yourself and more lowly of everyone else, and that that seeps into your gospel understanding, that it infects the way we think about the work of the cross of Jesus Christ. And it changes, it has to change the way we pray. It has to change the way we worship when we think that God's grace is good enough for me. We have to recognize that God's grace is good enough for the entire world. There is no people group no matter how different they are, no matter how wrong they are in the way they think, no matter how much their life would be so much better if only they whatever. The cross of Jesus Christ is intended for all peoples. That's the only way you'll ever see truly that the cross is also meant specifically for you. Let's pray together. Lord in heaven, we do ask for your blessing here upon our worship service, that in all we proclaim, in how we live, that there would be no individual ever that comes into this worship service that hears our message, that watches us interact with each other, and would possibly walk away with the thought, well, that's not for me. God, I confess that I have been a part of worship services that I am sure have left that impression in people's minds, that they could possibly leave here and think that the gospel message is not for them, that this gospel message is not for them. Lord, we don't want to be like that, either in our corporate worship together or in our individual stance as we come before you. Help us, Father, to remove that kind of thinking and to appreciate only that which you teach us through Jesus Christ our Lord, who taught us to pray together, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. 
Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.